before we continue, we actually have some, uh, some guests this morning with us. Um, we have a family from, uh, from World Impact out in L.A., and this is a ministry that we actually support and fund, and so um, uh, Doug and Cynthia are going to come up with their family and kind of talk a little bit about uh, what our missions dollars are going towards, and uh, sometimes we do this simply just to highlight a ministry, but um, just getting to know this family, we want, to hear, want you guys to hear from their hearts and kind of how they've gotten involved in World Impact in the past years, so give you guys a few minutes to chat about that. Thank you very much. Wow, thank you. Good morning. All right, you're awake. I am too. Thank you for having us. As you said, uh, my name is Doug Peters. This is my wife, Cynthia, and we even brought our three kids here to introduce themselves. Can you say your name and how old you are? My name is Elijah, and I'm five. My name is Naomi, and I'm nine. My name is Olivia, and I'm 11. My name is Cynthia, and I'm... All right, you guys can go sit down. As you may or may not know, we are your missionaries. Um, it's an interesting story, actually. This is our first weekend here. Never been here to Foothill, uh, but we heard about you last year. We're missionaries with World Impact. Last year, Pastor Kelly called me up, and uh, one of my jobs is to work with partnering churches. Called me up and said, hey, who are you guys? We support you and we support your organization, and she was brand new, it sounded like, and so I said, come on down, you guys are not far away, and so she came down, and I gave her a tour, and she learned all about World Impact, and we learned about Foothill, and so we're excited that after that, um, you guys adopted us as a family, and so you guys as a church financially support us, and they also support our general World Impact uh, organization. Well, Probably you don't know much about World Impact, uh, but I'd love to tell you a little bit in the few minutes that we have. And if you want to get in more information, I'll be back in the, in the foyer there uh, by our table. But World Impact is a Christian missions organization, and we work in the inner cities of America. We work in about 10 different cities across the U.S. right now. We have four schools, and we have four camps across the countryside. And... <coughs> Some people ask me, why are you called World Impact if you're just in 10 cities in America? We should be called America Impact, right? <laughs> actually, have you looked, actually, have you looked in your row? Have you looked and visited Los Angeles City? Do you know how many different languages are spoken in Los Angeles? You know, I, I got a statistic from somebody that said, you know, the LA Unified School District, the public school system, there's over 120 different languages spoken there. That's amazing. The world is coming to America. The world is coming to the large cities of America. And so that's kind of what World Impact is all about. We decided uh, our ministry is about 40 plus years old. Uh, so we're just kind of a small organization still. But in Los Angeles, we have about 50 some staff. And we started off many, many years ago doing Bible clubs and discipleship of teens and, and, and kids. And as they grew up, we, we started opening schools and doing other types of ministries like that. Uh, we have a thrift store downtown LA um, and, and two schools, one in Watts and one in downtown LA. Um, and so that's kind of how we're trying to impact the world. But our main goal is to plant churches. Our main goal is to plant churches. And so uh, that's hopefully how we can impact the whole world by, by planting churches in all these different uh, ethnic and people groups and probably have first-generation links to almost the 
you know, the whole earth. That's amazing. And so that's just a little synopsis of what World Impact is. If you're interested, I can, again, give you more information. Uh, myself, I am Canadian, so I'm actually a foreign missionary to your country. Thank you for having me here. And so <laughs> many, many, many years ago, when I was a young person, I was one of those kids, and I wanted to just, I was trying to like, God, where do you, I grew up in a Christian home, I was like, God, where do you want me to go? Do you want me to go back to university and finish, you know, further my education? Should I just get into my, my career? And so I came on a mission trip, and we came down, and we drove down in these vans, and in July, it was super hot, driving on that I-5. We came into LA, and we did a mission trip. There's about 27 other young people, and we went to Watts, and we did Bible clubs. We went to our camp, and we did a family camp up there, and that week really, really changed my life. I was like, oh, I think this is it. I think this is what God was calling me to be, and uh, so yeah, I came down the next year, you know, thinking, okay, maybe I'll just try this up, because I honestly, I did not know a soul in the whole United States of America. I didn't know anybody. And so I came down following the Lord, came and I joined World Impact uh, for a summer. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll start for six months. Give that a try. Well, six months turned into a year, into two, into five. I met my wife. She's an L.A. girl. And I know you guys are APU people, but she went to Biola. <laughs> but at Biola, she heard about World Impact, and we got married about 15 years ago and three wonderful children later. 23 years later, I'm still a missionary here in the city. And so uh, it's amazing what God has been doing here. Uh, and I don't have time to tell you everything. But one of my jobs right now is called church partnerships. And so my goal is to work with volunteer groups. I met Pastor Steve, and he brought his Impact Youth uh, a couple, well, I don't know when that was, a few months back. And you guys did some painting. And we'd love for you guys to partner with us even more than you already are. We'd love, you know, bring a men's group, bring your, one of your growth groups, come down. You're not that far away. Come and do some more painting, do some, do some ministry, do some Bible club. Um, and so that's one of my goals. And then I'm going to let my wife share for a few seconds here about another thing we do. My best. Mm -hmm. um, yes, I uh, was born and raised in LA. And yes, I did go to Biola. But we are all in the body of Christ. And that is one thing when we are part or when we do church partnering, that's one thing that I really praise God for is a little glimpse of what and who the kingdom of God is, right? And so it's like seeing churches, you know, nor slave, nor free, male, female, suburban, urban. We want to see Christ be illuminated through the kingdom of God. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful thing for us to be a part of. And another thing that Doug and I are a part of and we see a trend with is those who are in ministry, who are in pastoral leadership and elders, we see the need for care. And one of the things, especially in 1 Peter 5, it speaks specifically in that area, is as Pastor Stephen <laughs> and other pastors, but even our urban pastors, there is something about when they give out who shepherds them, correct? And so scripture speaks that, and Paul, he did the same thing. He needed Barnabas. He needed people in his life as he was going through loneliness to help them through things. And so our job, the fun job, is to develop that and see God's word illuminate in that and seeing a church strengthen, become sustainable, and be reproducible in that. And so that's the fun part that Doug and I get to be involved in. And um, we just thank you that you guys get to partner with us because we are all, again, in the body of Christ. So thank you so much for helping us and supporting us in that. 
Yes, thank you so much. Even more than the financial support that you guys give us, we really appreciate prayer. We really would love for you to guys continue to pray for us. Get to know us. Grab our prayer card. Put it on your fridge. You know, pray for us and uh, come out. Come out and visit us. We'd love to see you. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Let's see my hand, guys. <laughs> this morning's scripture is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 to 20 on page numbers 555 and 556 in the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. <coughs> All right. Well, excuse me, I'm finding a little bit of a cough this morning. Uh, but, hey, my name's Stephen. If I have not met you yet, it's good to see you all here. Um, if you've been uh, joining us for a little while, or maybe you've even just coming back for the first time in a bit, we're actually back in the book of Ecclesiastes that we started in the fall. And so, uh, super excited about that. And as you just heard, uh, we're actually talking about you and your money. So, all right, right? Just feel the excitement and rising in the room. Um, yeah, it's the same excitement that I felt when Chris said, hey, I'm going to China for two weeks, and you're talking about money with the church. So, uh, But in all seriousness, no, I, I, think, I think when we get to the issue of money and how we spend it, how we earn it, there's a little bit of this resistance because for some people, money, honestly, is their functional savior. It's their, it's their idol. And people don't like to mess with that kind of thing. And so part of the reason why money is such a controversial issue is because in our culture, there's this very real, very complicated debate between the rich and the poor. And uh, if you just you know, look around, if you just kind of just notice what's happening in the world, political affiliation has a lot of its roots in how we spend our money. Um, you know, we have the Republican and Democratic Party, and one of the reasons why maybe some of you may choose one or the other is because of you know, how we spend money in the government. And many of us will even assign you know, moral competency, you know, kind of towards people how they spend their money. In other words, we judge them, right? Um, and, and so we kind of all have a hand in this a little bit. 
In the world of religion and church, it gets even a little more dicey because you have lots of different perspectives on money. Um, you got guys, theologians like Gustavo Gutierrez, who on one hand, he preaches a, a liberation theology, right? And he's got this theology that uplifts the poor. And on the other hand, you've got some of these word of faith brothers who, you know, preach to 10,000 people this morning and drive home in their Bentleys. And, and so the debate between rich and poor continues. And a lot of times the question that we have is, man, who's the bad guy here? Who's the good guy here? Where do we land on this? And it's important for us, right off the bat, we remember as Christians, man, that it's important that while we may have our opinions, we, a lot of us in this room are, a lot of you guys are very smart people, very capable people, business owners, you know, very intelligent when it comes to economics and financial stuff. It's like, but at the same time, while we might have our own opinions, it's important that we remember, we, we submit as Christians, not to culture, not to what the talking heads on TV say, not to even the way that, you know, our family kind of raises us, but we submit to what scripture says. And I, I want to start off by at the front just saying, man, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see what scripture says about, about money, about our money, how we get it, how we spend it. Because as we look at this passage, I really believe that if we study this and we see what it says, you're going to find that the Bible doesn't speak so much about rich and poor, but the Bible speaks about righteous and unrighteous. And that's kind of the big idea here. As we look at scripture, the next, really the next two weeks in Ecclesiastes, I want you to be careful that you don't get into this trap of, man, what's, what's better, right? Is it better to be rich? Is it better to be poor? Because ultimately, the big takeaway for this morning, if you want to even write this down, is it's not good to be rich or poor. It's good to be righteous. That's what God is after. God is after a righteous heart. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. It's good to be righteous. See, God makes you rich or poor, right? That's his prerogative. It's his discretion. It's up to him. And you see people in the Bible who are kind of all over the map in this area. You see people who are very wealthy and righteous. You got people who are very poor and righteous, you got people, on the other hand, who are very wealthy and unrighteous and are very poor and unrighteous. And so it's, it's interesting. You kind of see it all over the place. And I, I thought it would be helpful this morning to kind of think about some of the context where, where our culture has kind of shifted and how we've gotten here today a little bit. <clears throat> I believe that um, in high school, I got a C in my ec- economics class, all right? Uh, so I'm not necessarily the expert to talk about this. That's why I'm a people pastor, right? Uh, there's people like John White who are like administrative pastors, but there's this interesting book that I read a while back. It's called The Experience Economy. And uh, The Experience Economy, it kind of gives us a little bit of background on how we as society got here uh, financially. So uh, this isn't my stuff. This is just some stuff I, I read. And I want to share with you. kind of sets it up with, as we get into this passage a little bit. So here's a little bit of background, okay? Uh, so a, a thousand years ago, our, our society, our economy was driven by commodities. Okay, so commodities. Most of us would have been farmers, right? If you wanted something, you had to grow it, you had to kill it, you had to, you know, had to chop it down. This is, this is how we got things in our possession, and it transitioned from a commodities-based economy into a goods-based economy. And so goods meant, so for, if I wanted coffee originally, I'd have to grow the coffee beans, I'd have to grind the coffee beans, I'd have to boil the water, and then a goods economy came along and said, no, all you have to do is just buy the coffee beans. You don't have to grow them anymore. You just, we'll just give you the coffee beans. And then it went from 
from this goods-based economy where it's like, man, if you want to, you don't have to chop a tree down, you just buy the lumber. You don't have to buy a cow anymore, you just buy the milk. It went from goods, and it transitioned from a goods economy to a services economy. So a services economy, it's, it's, this is where everybody does the work for you, right? And so you don't have to grow your own coffee beans. You don't have to grind your own coffee. You can just go to the restaurant, and someone will serve you coffee, right? Uh, someone else made the coffee. Someone else will deliver it to you, and this is a, a service-based economy. And some of you guys still work in the service industry, Right, so your your baristas, your salespeople, you know, you don't work with commodities, you don't work with physical, with, phys, uh, with actually uh, taking these things out of the ground and serving it to them. You just serve it to them right off the bat, and so you're you're not working with your hands all day, and uh, you're just uh, you're you're not in a goods economy anymore. And so it went from commodities to goods to services, and now we're still in this uh, information-based economy, and. Uh, the trend really started with the invention of the printing press, right? Like 500 years ago, information kind of just started double and triple and quadruple, and it just really exploded. And then, and then Al Gore invented the internet, right? And then the internet came along. And um, with the internet, the amount of information every year doubles. Pretty amazing, pretty, pretty crazy. So the past 500 years has really been based around this information-based economy. You don't deal with commodities. You don't deal with goods right? It's about information. And so maybe some of you may work in the information economy. You're a teacher. You're a professor. You're about the distribution of information. This is where you get your money. So as we kind of transition now into the modern age, economy has kind of been more and more based upon something different. It's been dominated more and more by experiences. And so you and I will spend a lot of money on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And nowadays, we don't get a physical thing anymore, right? We don't get coffee beans or a cup of milk. We don't get a service. And more and more, right, information is cheap. You guys remember those things called encyclopedias, right? I mean, we used to buy those things. I remember my parents had like five sets. It was like awesome. It took up this entire bookcase. It was like really expensive. And now we have Wikipedia. I mean... It's amazing where we've come. And so what we do now is we spend our money on these experiences. And so we go to Disneyland, right? We go to concerts. We go to movies. We have these experiences. And so for the first time in the history of economics, when we spend our money, we don't get something physical in return, right? I mean, it's pretty, pretty crazy. Some of you guys, you know, you work in the experience economy, right? You're all about giving someone not a tangible thing, but, you know, a warm, fuzzy memory, Right? This is what we take away. And so this would have been completely crazy if we had talked to somebody a thousand years ago. It's like, hey, I'm going to give you all my money, and what do I get back? Well, you are now the proud owner of a beautiful memory. It's like, oh, that's weird. I want a cow, right? I want something I can touch and right, get something from. And uh, this, is, this is what's interesting, man. Our economy's kind of shifted. And here's why I bring all this up. I don't bring all this up to make you think I'm smart. This just comes from a book, okay? So, it, but in this transition through economies, from goods to, to services to information to experiences, the point is this, is the way that we earn our money and the way we spend our money is more complicated now in history than it's ever been. We have so many options, so many distractions at our fingertips, there are so many things that are kind of vying for our attention. And the question, it becomes this. Are you going to be righteous or unrighteous with your money? 
And that's what we're looking at this morning. This is what the Bible is getting at because the Bible clearly teaches, look, it's not, it's not even your money to begin with, right? You, we're stewards of the resources. We're stewards of the things that we've been given. And so God's just given us a portion. It's not ours, it's his. And so we have this added weight now of living in this time period, this responsibility of saying, man, I have a lot of options at my fingertips. I can spend my money in lots of ways. I can earn my money by lots of means. But God has called us to be stewards. He's entrusted us to give towards what he would think is important. And so as we start today, again, the question is, are you going to be righteous or unrighteous in how we do that? So here we go. Let's go ahead and open back our Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And uh, we're just going to go kind of verse by verse through here and look at what uh, Solomon has to say about this from his great wisdom. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 8. It says this, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is washed by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So right off the bat, Solomon wants to kind of displace this, this idea. Um, he wants to, us to understand, look, we don't really put our hope in government. Why? Because politicians are going to rip you off. It's just true, right? You don't have to be Christian to agree with that, right? It's just, it's kind of, it's totally true because what happens is somebody gets elected into office and they have, they've gotten there by receiving money in all sorts of ways for their campaign and they have made promises and, and look, we're talking about flawed human people. So anybody in a, a leadership position like that, especially a formal one, has other motives. And so, because they want to go out and get a job afterwards, right? They're only in office for a certain amount of time, and they want to make sure that they make the right people happy. And here in chapter 5, Solomon starts it off by saying, look, if you want to change the world, if you're looking for reformation, if you're looking for things to get better, don't put your hope in government. And look, vote, right? Get involved. That's fine. Do all that. Be active. Absolutely. But until God changes hearts, that's the point here. God has to change people's hearts in order for things to change. It's not just a matter of who's in an elected seat of office because all we're doing as voters really at the end of the day is we're just rotating very flawed, very human sinners in and out of seats of authority. And so don't be surprised when crooked people do crooked things. And that's how he starts here, chapter five, verse eight. Uh, look at verse 10. He says this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So the Bible doesn't teach that you and I shouldn't use and spend money. It doesn't say that. It doesn't teach that you shouldn't even use it, right? It teaches that you shouldn't love money. And, and the New Testament echoes this idea, right? And it's an idea that a lot of us have maybe even heard misquoted, right? It's, it's, right, if you love money, then you'll never make enough because the love of money is the roots of all, root of all kinds of evil. And so if you love having money, if you just think about it all the time, right, you're never gonna have enough. And because of that ambition and drive, it's gonna drive you to unrighteous decisions, and so if you love money, you'll never have enough. And this leads to a lot of things we see in society. 
We see the result of this all throughout the world. This leads to personal bankruptcies. This leads to personal credit card debt. Um, you know, I was doing a little bit of research uh, from a survey of consumer finances as of January 2014. So this is pretty recent. Here's where we as a country land on our debt, okay? Um, just personally, kind of household-wise. Uh, the average credit card debt uh, in the U.S. per household is $7,123. All right, so just a heads up on this number. This number actually includes all of you, I'm just assuming, all of you who don't have credit card debt, right? And if that's you, good for you, but you've kind of messed up the curve. So this is everybody, all right? If you take out everybody who doesn't have any debt as well and just look at the people who have debt, that number jumps up to $15,270 in credit card debt. And that's per household. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know where you're at with this. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. Uh, average mortgage debt is 149925 This is average. We live in California. We're not really average here, right? Some of you guys would love to have a mortgage of that size. Average student loan debt, 32258 And uh, it's just interesting, man. I, I think, I think as, as college students, I remember being in college, and you don't think about that stuff, right? I mean, you don't, you don't have this futuristic planning when it comes to that. I, I graduated with some, some friends that had like 80 grand in, in student loan debt. It was just like, wow, man, that's going to take a long time to pay off. And so what does this tell us? I don't, I, don't, I don't say this to embarrass anyone or to point anybody out. I'm just showing you guys, man, this is proof of what Solomon writes thousands of years ago, that if you love money, you will find a way to spend money even when you don't have money, right? You'll, just, you'll do whatever you can to spend money. And even if you make more money, you'll just raise your standard of living along with it. So we begin to see that it's a heart issue. It's, it's not it's a money issue, it's a heart issue. You see, money is like a gauge, all right? Most of you guys drive cars, you're familiar with your dashboard. Money is like a little gauge in your dashboard, right? It's nothing morally good or bad about the gauge. It, it just simply tells you what's going on. Like, no one runs out of gas on the highway and just, like, sits there and screams at their fuel gauge. Like, what's wrong with you? That's just, that's dumb. It's morally neutral. It's not the gauge's fault. And money is the same way. It's simply an indication of how we're spending our, our life, an indication of what we love and what we value. And so we have to remember there's nothing wrong with money. It's about how we use it. Uh, verse 11, let's keep looking at this. And if you catch this here, he starts talking, he makes this distinction between righteous and unrighteous a little bit. And in verse 11 is this unrighteous and, and rich guy here. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So as soon as you make, start making lots of money, right? Let's say you hit it big or, I don't know, you get a great job or, I don't, I don't know. But there, there are people who all of a sudden kind of show up, right, in your life. You're like, oh, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you in a couple of years. And uh, they're trying to, make more, trying to take that money from you. So as Biggie once famously said, mo money, mo problems, Right? More money, more problems. How many times have you guys read about 
somebody in the news, this like amazing athlete or this great celebrity who just kind of hits it, which just says multi-million dollar contract. And then like five years later, the dude is out of work. He's like poor. He's got all these bills to pay. He's got child support, all this stuff going on. And it's, it's kind of, it adds up, right? He's got his taxes. He has his attorney, his accountants. He's got his personal bodyguards, his chef, right? He's got to look good. So he's got his fashion person and he's got his high maintenance wife and then eventually her divorce attorney, right? And you got these bad investments that you knew were bad, but your friends talked you into it. And so this is kind of what verse 11 is getting at. It's like, man, it, it, it's not all, you know, sunshine and roses. If you, if you have a lot of wealth, you have to have a lot of wisdom as well. As well. So what's verse 11 getting at? It, it's getting at this. It may be better to be the poor guy with those sexy coupon cutting wives, right? I mean, maybe that's a better situation for you. Because some of you guys can't handle the wealth. And this is the guy that Solomon talks about in verse 12. Uh, he's righteous, but he's poor. He's a blue-collar guy. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The sleep of a laborer is sweet. And uh, I mean, that's what he's talking about. Again, we're not talking about rich or poor. We're talking about righteous or unrighteous. And so if you're unrighteous and you're rich, you may have a hard time sleeping. Because you have a lot of things going on in the back of your mind. You have, you got deals that you're dealing with. You got contracts in your brain. You got your portfolio, your strategy. You have your competitors. Maybe you're dealing with a lawsuit. And uh, there's a lot to be stressed out about. But the laborer, Solomon says the laborer, the guy who loves the Lord, who works hard, who just punches the clock, comes home to his family. He does his job well. He's righteous. Man, he sleeps like a baby. And, and look, one thing money can't buy you, or maybe it can in pill version, but usually it is a good night's sleep. Uh, man, a good night's sleep is tied to a, a clear conscience. And, and for us as believers, a clear conscience has to do with us living righteously. And we've got to remember that. Of verses 13 through 17, let's continue on. It says, There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb. He shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and in anger. So is it possible to get a lot of money to kind of have this lavish lifestyle and have it ruin your life. Yes, it's possible. Um, a lot of us have seen these, you know, these little stories they do on, on the news about these people who win the lottery, right? And it's like, man, I wish I never, ever bought the ticket because it just ruined their life. And it makes sense because now you can afford all kinds of things that you didn't afford before, right? I mean, you can afford to quit your job and just travel. Okay, that sounds awesome for a lot of us for maybe like a month or two, I don't know, maybe a year. But if you live your entire life that way, I guarantee you, you're gonna be a pretty screwed up person. 
uh, that, that, that's not very well balanced, right? I mean, there's gotta be some responsibilities that you have. There's gotta be things that, that draw you back home. There's family, there's responsibilities involved. Maybe you can, uh, before you couldn't afford all kinds of sin, now you can afford a drug habit, or now you can afford to get into trouble and do all these things that, that you couldn't before. And, and so he's also talking about this issue of hoarding wealth, the hoarding of wealth. Wealth isn't for hoarding. Scripture says wealth is for sharing. And then we leave it up to God to replace that wealth if it's up to him. And so people who are righteous, when they get money, they don't hold on to it. They, they don't hoard it. They share it. They fund ministries, right? They give it away. They help widows and orphans. They, they help those people who are in need. But people who hoard their wealth, people who keep their money close to them, man, it causes them trouble. Again, because we're supposed to be stewards of what God's given us. We're not supposed to be gluttons, just like making ourselves fat on whatever we can. So this is why we need to be thinking futuristically. This is why me as a, as a dad, I need to be investing in my kid's future and putting away for a college fund. This is why we need to be, uh, we need to be investing and faithfully tithing to our local church. We help those in need. <clears throat> when I was first out of college, my wife and I, um, we decided to help plant this church in Temecula. And um, uh, this was around 2004. And uh, it was a completely unstable time in our life. It really was, like in all sorts of ways. Um, it was either between planting this church in Temecula or joining the Peace Corps. It was kind of just where we were at at that time. And uh, we were trying to raise money for this church ministry. We were completely over our heads in what you know, church, a church plant was even supposed to be about. Uh, we just gotten married that summer, and uh, it, it was all new. So I was, we were just out of college, and right out of college, I had this uh, Honda Civic, uh, this car that I'd had since high school. And it was a good car. It was great. It, was, it worked fine, but it was just one car. And I had a job, and Katie had a job, and we both kind of had to do our separate things during the day. So uh, I'll never forget this, uh, this, this guy, my, this friend of a friend of mine, this guy I had literally never even met before, he had heard that we had this need. And um, he had heard that these two young college graduates had moved out to Temecula to plant a church. And so I'll never forget this, but somehow he got my number, and he calls me up, and he's like, hey, man, you don't know me, but my name's Mike. I'm like, hi, Mike. And uh, what do you want, Mike, right? And hey, he's like, hey, I, I, I heard that you may need an extra car, and I just happen to have one that you can have. I was like, what? I remember hanging up the phone, and I was like, just shocked, right? I was like, is that like a prank? Someone just pulled on me or something? Like, who does that? Who gives away a car, right? Who, who does that? Well, I'll tell you who does that. Someone who's giving away a 1978 Volvo, okay? <laughs> this, was, uh, <laughs> this was the first car that my wife and I got right out of college that we acquired. And you know, I, I kind of have this bittersweet look as I gaze upon that car, but um, in, in all seriousness, it was great. It was a blessing to us. Um, man, it was a car that I was able to drive around town for a little while while we saved up money to buy something more sturdy, and it, it kind of got us through a period of time, and it was a blessing. And look, you guys might look at that saying, like, really, is that that generous? It's like, well, he, he could have maybe gotten a couple hundred bucks for it. He could have gotten maybe a thousand bucks. I don't know, you know? But he decided to give it away to me for free. And, and this is what we're talking about. I think a lot of us think, man, I have to do these lavish, crazy, amazing, like, Oprah-type things in order to be generous, right? 
You don't have to do that. You can find small ways to be generous. And it starts by looking at what, what man, what do I have? Where is, the, where is the excess in my life that I can bless someone else with? And so we look for opportunities to bless. We don't hoard. We don't think about our own needs. We give away. And verses 13 through 17 talk about these people that, man, they hoard their money. They love their money. They obsess over it. And people who are redeemed, who are good stewards, as money comes to them, they say, man, I want to spend it wisely. I want to invest. I want to share it freely. No problem at all. And, and man, I, I love that this guy, Mike, you know, 10 years ago, he, he, he was willing to see my wife Katie and I as an investment at some level and say, man, I want to invest in you guys in just a small way. Because in the end, we may lose it anyway, right? You guys remember Job. Job was this righteous, upright guy. He lost it all. He lost his family. He lost his, his family, his family's riches, his wealth, uh, misfortune comes, and it just, it can hit you sideways. And uh, man, many of you want to leave some kind of inheritance for your kids, right? You, you have this desire to anyway, and many people want to be able to do that, but if you're unrighteous, and if you even have that wealth, God may find a way to take that from you. And I don't say that just to scare you, but I, I think it's biblical too. And you may say, man, I, I, you don't understand. I have a great portfolio. I have a great plan. I have a great strategy in mind. But there's also a sovereign God in the equation who, who's, man, if you're stealing from him, if you're taking from him what's his, if you're not being a good steward, then why would he entrust you with more time and more money? And I'm not teaching a prosperity theology that says if you love God, you'll get rich. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is that Oftentimes when calamity hits, when, when trouble comes, maybe we're not looking at, at our relationship with God enough and saying, man, am I in right standing with the Lord right now? Remember what we've learned so far in this book, past two months or so. This is a book where Solomon did it all, right? I mean, he, he had all the money that he needed. He could have the most lavish lifestyle. He had the best stuff money could buy, and this is all from experience. And he says, look, man, I did it all, and money can destroy you. And so the point is not to get rich, get more stuff, acquire things. The point is to be righteous and enjoy your life. And so if God enables you to be rich during the process, then, then praise him for that. If God says, no, you're gonna be on the poor end of things, then praise him for that. Because when you and I die, the only things that we will take to heaven with us is what we did for God's kingdom. Well, the, the memories that we have, the, the friends and family we have, not the stuff that we've acquired, our TV, our car, our, our hot tub, our boat, our sports equipment, right? Our, our musical equipment. Some of you guys love your tools, right? It's just like, man, I'd I, I love to get more tools. Some of, you, some of you ladies like to you know, have these things in the kitchen that are very expensive and mix things up a lot. And it's like, man, this is crazy. You can't take it with you. You can't. And none of, it, none, none of it's evil. None of it's wrong. None of it's, it, it's, it's bad. It's not sinful. It's just, it's not going with us. And we have to remember that. It's a vanity. It's a vapor. And so I'll say it again. I plead with you as a church, don't get caught up in the trap of rich and poor. Think in the perspective of righteous and unrighteous. And leave the money stuff up to God. He closes then with this example of a righteous rich guy. And believe it or not, 
there's people like this in the Bible. We've looked at the unrighteous rich guy from a multitude of angles. We've looked at the, the, the righteous poor laborer. And now we're going to look at this affluent guy who's got some wealth. And there were men and women like this throughout Scripture. Uh, Lydia, Job, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the guy who, who allowed Jesus to be laid in his tomb for, for a little while. And so here's the righteous rich guy. Verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Let's stop there just for a minute because I, I love this. And I, I love that we see that eating and drinking and enjoying life is a part of our righteousness. It should be a part of the way we worship. It should be a part of the way that we just praise God with what he's given us and the generosity he's bestowed upon us. And I love that God, this God that we serve, he's not this mysterious you know, theologian up in the clouds who's just kind of like saying these very general vague things. He gets so practical even here, it talks about what to do with your money, what to do with your food, what to do with your drink. And Solomon brings it down to this practical level and says, man, you want to be righteous? Start with your fridge, right? Start with your credit card. Start with your budget. Start with your diet. He goes on in verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Eat, drink, work hard. That's what righteous people do. They eat, they drink, they work their job. Why? Because they, they love the Lord, they accept who they are, they accept where they're at, and look, I'm not talking about being you know, this lazy, downer person who has no ambition or drive to get to the next level. If, that's, if you have an opportunity for that, absolutely. You can use that for lots of things in the kingdom. But what I'm saying, though, is that Scripture also says at some level, we have to accept where God has us. Jim Elliott, missionary, very famous missionary, was quoted as saying, wherever you are, be there. Wherever you are, be there. And this is, man, this is good wisdom for me because I'm a person who tends to think, maybe you're like this too, I, I tend to think in terms of not days or, you know, uh, a weeks. I tend to think in, like, years and decades and, like, this is where I want to be in, like, a, a little while. And, and that's unhealthy because, as Scripture says, man, wherever you are, be there. We have to just make sure that we're content because there's this myth that some of us grew up with, um, man, that you can be anything you want to be, Right? And uh, you can do anything you want to do. Some of us in elementary school had teachers who loved us, who had parents who loved us, who spoke this into our lives. And it's like, all right, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the, these awesome things. I'm going to be an astronaut. And now we can't even be astronauts anymore, right? Uh, I mean, do you believe that? I mean, look at me. Can I really do anything? No. I can't be in the NBA, right? I mean... As much as I train and want to be in the NBA, I could maybe jump and touch the net, right? Uh, I, I can't be a famous actor. I can't be in the movies, right? I can watch movies. I'm good at that, but I can't, I can't do anything I want to do. And guys, not to burst your bubble, but neither can you. God has you in a place, in a, in a time, in this cycle of life exactly where he wants you. And I need to accept my lot. You need to accept your lot. I'm a short Asian dude with a great family, all right? That's what God has given me to work with. And I need to use all my energy and all my time not thinking about, man, 
how can I get to the next level in my basketball skills? No, this would be a waste of time. I need to use all my time and energy into thinking, man, how can, I, how can I use what God's given me to serve the Lord, to be generous to people? And if I spend my time and energy doing that, man, who knows what could happen? Who knows what could happen if, if you are reminded of that as well today, that if you accept where God has you in your life, it can be so liberating. Some people are striving so hard to be what mom and dad want them to be. And you'll just, you'll never be that. Accept your life. And you may say, well, this is who I am then, right? I love working with my hands. I love to build things. I love to, you know, I like to do things like that. Well, great, go do that. Go work a job where you can do that. Love Jesus, be righteous, work your job. Others of you are like, man, my, the way my brain works, right? I just love numbers and graphs, and I like to, I like to think about that stuff all the time. Go, go and do that, right? Uh, love Jesus, work hard, eat Drink, work your job, be righteous. This is what this passage is getting at. It's not about rich or poor. It's not about class. It's not about you know, where you're at, what kind of job title you have. It's about loving Jesus and living righteously. And understanding, man, all of us have different opportunities, different resources at hand to bless the kingdom with. And so we do that. He concludes with more on this in verse 19 and 20. It says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So according to scripture, God gives some people wealth. For what reason? To enjoy that wealth. And... Uh, so we, we run up against one of these great themes in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we see again that, that stuff and the enjoyment of stuff are two different things. Do we understand this? You understand that if you just get more stuff, you're not going to be happy. It, whether it's a you know, birthday or Christmas or a bonus check or a new job or a, a change up to a new city, if you just have stuff it doesn't equal happiness. There's another part to the equation because in addition to the stuff, you also have to enjoy the stuff. And what we need to remember is that it is God and his common grace to all of us to allow us to enjoy that stuff. That's God's working. That's God's ability. I have a beautiful wife. I can't enjoy her without God's grace. I have two beautiful kids who without God's grace would just be two snotty, dirty little kids, right? I mean, there's days. And so, without God's grace, man, I, I might have a great church, some great friends, some great family, but without God's grace, I can't enjoy any of that. And so, I, I want us to understand, man, it's, it's grace, it's God's grace that enables us to enjoy the things that we're blessed with. Um, so as we wrap this up, I just want to give you three questions, and this is for you guys to write down, that may help you in sorting out kind of where you're at with this. I realize, and I, what I love about this is that this isn't talking to one, you know, individual class of, of financial situation here. This is for all of us, and so where are we at with all of this? It's something that for those of you in growth groups, we'll be talking more about this week, but um, I'll put these up and you can write them down if you want to, and just talk more about this with maybe a friend of yours. Number one, what is my deepest and strongest desire in my life? This question is simply getting at, man, what are your priorities? 
What is the thing that you want to spend most of your time uh, being about? Number two, what's been the consistent pattern of my financial decisions? Because again, money is that gauge, right? Kind of tells you where you're at. Three, what's the current level of my dissatisfaction? And this is simply getting at the idea of being content. Are, are you content with where God has you? And if not, then how, how can you change that? And I would just ask you guys to take some time, maybe today, maybe it's tonight, um, maybe it's a walk just thinking through these questions. Maybe you know, grab your spouse and, and, and talk through this stuff. And remember, we're using money as a gauge. It's a gauge on the dashboard. It's, it's simply telling us the condition of our heart. The Bible says that you shouldn't love your money, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so some people, some of you may feel even led to respond, well, okay, then I'll hate money, right? I'll just, I'll get rid of all of it. Well, if you hate money, you're consumed by it as well. Loving and hating money still keeps money as the priority. Neither of these is a good solution, and that's why prosperity theologians and poverty theologians are both wrong. People who say, look, give away all your stuff, and then you'll be righteous. Or people will say, look, if you were righteous, you'd have more stuff. They're both wrong. They're both wrong, because it's not about money, it's about the heart. It's about the heart, and so you and I, we have this choice. Man, we have this opportunity. And if you love money, if you love money, we're gonna use people to get more money. We're gonna use God to get more money. But if you love God, you're gonna do everything you can and even repurpose some of, those, some of those, uh, those resources in order to serve him. And so the key here is to love God and use money to serve people. So some of you uh, this morning, man, maybe this hits a point of conviction for you. And you're like, I'm that guy, right? I'm this guy who I, I pursue wealth far greater than I pursue Jesus. And this morning is a great opportunity for you to, to repent and to stop and think about what you're doing in this life and realize, man, I, I'm putting all of my investments and all my time and energy into things that will not last. And, and so I, I, I ask you to repent. Think about what God has calling you to do, realizing, man, Jesus, he gave up everything for us. He, he died on a cross, and he'll cleanse you from any unrighteousness in this life. But it begins with repentance, and it ends with, with praying and reading scripture and growing and learning and becoming righteous because of his righteousness. So for some of you, maybe that's you. For others of you, maybe this is a, an, a sermon of encouragement. I hope that's the case. Maybe, maybe a lot of you guys are like, yes, nodding your heads, I'm, I'm right there with you. This is exactly where I'm at. Maybe you don't make as much money as you'd like to, but you realize that you're on the right path, that you're striving for righteousness. And so wherever we're at this morning, uh, remember, it's not about rich or poor. It's about the heart. It's about righteousness. It's about loving Jesus. Let's pray.